think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I'm back from the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival. What a time it was. It's hard to go wrong with birding the valley, especially when so many rare birds are around. In fact, I spent the very first full day that I was there chasing four ABA and Texas rarities, including the absurdly long-staying social flycatcher that listeners might remember first made an appearance in the Rare Bird Focus back in 2021. Well, it, like the stellar sea eagle in eastern Canada, is still around and had been regular for a couple weeks leading up to the festival. I saw it. ABA life for number one, and we immediately headed out to South Padre Island, where a pair of Anis had been spotted, groove-billed, being a regular in Texas, but is usually gone by the time that the festival rolls around, so I hadn't seen it. It turns out that one of the two present Anis was getting some buzz as a possible smooth-billed Ani, which would be a Texas first record, so we found it. Mere minutes after that was confirmed, double Anis, double lifers, two and three. Then back to Harlingen, where a fork-tailed flycatcher had been seen for several days, maybe as many as two weeks. I wasn't sure. Uh, there was talk that it might be the same bird as showed up at this exact same site last year. It took a little bit of searching, but we got it. ABA area lifer number four. According to eBird, the last time that I got four ABA area lifers in one day was September 30th, 2014. That was when I was on St. Paul Island in the Bering Sea. So it's been a while, is what I'm saying. It has been a very long time. If the ABA ever moves on lilac crown parrot, then it will retroactively be a life or two. There were at least two of them in a big flock of red crown parrots in Harlinger, though that was, admittedly, the night before. But yes, the birds, they were a great show, but I met a lot of people at the festival who were fans of this podcast, the American Birding Podcast. Many came by the booth to say hello. Others I encountered randomly around Harlingen during the festival. To all of you who stopped me and shared that they listened to this podcast, thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying it. And thank you especially for telling me so. I work at home. I interact with folks primarily online, which is a fraught communication medium, to say the least. So it is really great to go to a place where birders are and to talk to actual birders who are fans of what we do here. It means a lot. I appreciate it. I hope to see you all soon. Perhaps in Nashville next month at the Bird of the Year Reveal. You can get information about that at aba.org slash B-O-T-Y if you're interested. But we are not revealing yet. Another bird I saw in Texas right there at the end was Burrowing Owl. What a cutie. It is our Bird of the Year for 2022, and I wanted to make sure it got its due before we move before we move on to 2023. To that end, I have invited Colleen Wasinski and Suzanne Marchak of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance Burrowing Owl Recovery Project to talk about these fun little owls and efforts to protect them in Southern California. All that after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of November 2022. Quite a few first records to report this week, but we'll start with one that is noteworthy for the entire continent. Another Eurasian marsh harrier has been found in the ABA area, this time in Morris County, New Jersey, where it represents a first record for that state. You might remember the bird seen in Maine a couple months ago, the ABA's area, the ABA area's first confirmed record. One might justifiably imagine that this is the same bird, but close examination of photos taken in both New Jersey and Maine suggests that it is a completely different individual. So at least two marsh harriers got over the North Atlantic this year to cruise around the northeast of the continent. The Limpkin invasion from this past summer doesn't show signs of slowing even as the weather starts to turn. A Limpkin in Niagara County, New York is not only a first state record, but tantalizingly close to the Ontario border. Limpkin has yet to be documented anywhere in Canada, though that seems to be a foregone conclusion at this point. Limpkins might be avoiding Canada, but we won't. A Costas hummingbird in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan is a provincial first record. One hopes it holds on through early winter weather. And up in Yukon Territory, a bobolink at Haynes Junction is a territorial first. Yukon's fourth new bird this year. It's apparently hanging out with the territory's fourth record of lesser goldfinch. Speaking of areas that have been surprisingly productive this year, Wyoming comes to us yet again this week with a pair of king eiders found near Laramie, first for that state and last, but certainly not least in the minds of those of us who saw it this week. The aforementioned smooth-billed Ani in Cameron County, Texas is a Texas first. While Groovebuild is a summer resident in the area, this bird is a pretty long way from home. The closest smooth-billed Ani population is down in the Yucatan, though with the recent movement of red-legged honeycreepers in the Gulf, it's not so hard to think that a bird from that part of the world could end up in coastal Texas. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. It's the end of 2022, and the ABA is gearing up to announce its 2023 Bird of the Year, but we are not ready to say goodbye to the year of the burrowing owl just yet. They are such delightful birds after all. Uh, with that in mind, let's take the opportunity to talk burrowing owls with Colleen Wisinski and Suzanne Marchak of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's Burrowing Owl Recovery Program, an effort to study and conserve burrowing owls in Southern California. Welcome to you both. I'm excited to talk owls with you. How are you today? Good. It's great to be here. Doing great. Thanks for having us. So what is the current state of burrowing owls in Southern California these days? Colleen, would you like to start? Well, they're um, a California species of special concern. So that means their populations are declining. Um, and with the pace of development around um, urban areas and in the, ex- the remaining grassland habitat, their, um, their populations are, are, um, are definitely declining, which is of mm-hmm. concern. I assume with owls of this nature that required, you know, to be on the ground um, and in a place like Southern California where development is such an issue that that is sort of the main the main driver of the population declines of these birds. Am I, am I wrong? No, that's correct. As with many animals that are of conservation concern, they're experiencing habitat loss at a pretty um, fast pace and a large scale. And so they are a grassland specialist bird. They mm-hmm. require a flat, open grassland type of habitat. And with the loss of that habitat, um, they just can't, they can't hang on. 
Yeah, I was going to say exactly the sort of habitat that people like to build things on yeah, <laughs> in Southern exactly. California or everywhere, but Southern California in particular. That's exactly right. And with, you know, increased fragmentation of, of that remaining habitat, you have, mm-hmm. you know, other types of issues that come along with that, like edge effects. So, you know, yeah. increased urbanization along existing grassland habitat, where the burrowing owls that are in those grasslands are experiencing, you know, greater contact with um, even native predators like great horned owls, skunks, coyotes, things that are really heavily subsidized by urban environments. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, um, you know, we talk about burrowing owls as a grassland species, but they can be found in grass, all sorts of different kinds of grasslands uh, all over North America, all of the Americas, actually. Um, is there a, is there a specific type of Southern California grassland that is, that they particularly like? Is it, is it, um, unique to this area, that there are certain plants that are found there that are found nowhere else. I imagine burrowing owls can't be the only species that is sort of dealing with this this ongoing issue. Yeah, no, you're you're right that they they will inhabit many different kinds of grasslands. The key is that they have burrows, and that usually comes from other animals that create burrows. Here in Southern California, California ground squirrels mm-hmm. are what we call the ecosystem engineer in other parts of their range. It might be things like prairie dogs or badgers yeah. or desert tortoises. Um, and because a lot of those species are also experiencing declines or have been excluded from certain areas like the squirrels, that there aren't, um, there's not only not enough grassland, but there isn't mm-hmm. enough grassland with burrows available. Yeah, it is sort of interesting because when you think of burrowing owls in other parts of their ranges, I'm thinking in particular of of Florida, like the Florida subspecies of burrowing owls. And you've got these owls that are in these housing developments. Like they seem like obviously they're they're impacted in some sense, but the you know, it's kind of shocking to be driving along a South Florida neighborhood and see these empty lots with burrowing owls, you know, peering out of the PVC pipes there. Um, how is that different in California? Is it, is it development practices slightly different? Is I guess the the ground is different too, and there are different animals that are causing these burrows that are they're kind of tied to this. Yeah, that's in in Florida. They mm-hmm. are able to excavate their own burrows. Oh, the right, the okay. soil is much sandier and yeah, a lot looser, so they they can do the work on their own. There are parts of the range here, um, particularly in the Imperial Valley, where there's a, kind of a similar situation where mm-hmm. where there's this infrastructure in the form of the the irrigation canals that allow them to dig their own burrows in some cases, but throughout most of the western. Uh, Throughout most of Western North America, they require some other species to dig the burrow. Hmm. Um, it doesn't preclude them from remodeling, so to speak, but they <laughs> but they definitely need somebody else to create the hole initially. Um, but in other for other subspecies of burrowing owl, they also might live in areas that have different kind of substrate. So I was fortunate enough to travel to Aruba to help a mm-hmm. collaborator and they dig their own burrows there. Huh. I, th- I think in other parts of South America, they can also dig their own burrows. It just really depends on what the substrate is like. That's really interesting that they, yeah, yeah, that that is sort of a unique to to where you are because the soil is obviously, you know, it's mountainous, it's rocky, it's, it's, it's difficult for them. Yeah. Also, when we think about grasslands, you know, in Western North America, mm-hmm. including Southern California, you know, the types of 
grassland landscape that existed 200 years ago, 300 mm-hmm. years ago is very different than what it looks like today, where we see primarily non-native um, grasses, yeah. Mediterranean yeah. type grasses that grow a lot taller and thicker than um, what that grassland may have looked like when burrowing owls um, kind of first evolved to be on the landscape here. So a lot of the grasslands here in order to help sustain burrowing owls need to be kind of managed because yeah. even with the presence of fossorial mammals, like Colleen said, you know, that's just not enough to keep that level of grass down so that there's that, you know, visual um, clearance for the owls to look out for predators on the landscape. Has this been an ongoing uh, issue? Like, do you have areas where um, burrowing owls have perhaps been extirpated from a, from a local population and the owls, you know, the land changes in a way that seems more or less imperceptible to humans, but the owls have you know, they've obviously looked at it and they said, this is, this is not good enough. Is it sort of an ongoing issue trying to figure out what is best for them and what, what they will take to in a way that, you know, might, might cause their population to rebound? Yeah, there, it's quite complicated. The, yeah, a lot of the areas, that, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the areas where they, they used to exist, just don't, there is no habitat left. There, mm-hmm. there used to be um, a, a very large, population from all accounts, a much larger population of burrowing owls in San Diego County that lived along the more coastal areas. And all of those areas have become, you know, housing developments and freeways and things like that. So it's permanent infrastructure that that habitat is never going to be, is never going to be restorable or habitable again by these guys. So it's, they're, yeah, they're just facing not having enough space with the right type of habitat. And and then on top of it, as Suzanne mentioned, having these non-native grasses that make the the habitat that is left that is the habitat that is left less desirable. Is this a, a migratory population of burrowing owls? They're not year-round residents, or are they? Actually, that's a great question. They are year-round residents. Oh here. wow! Okay. And yeah, that's a um, an interesting aspect of studying them uh, yeah, that that we do have a year-round population, but we also have a wintering population. So we have some huh. birds that come from farther north in the range and spend the winter here. And I guess their requirements are less specific because they're not, they don't need the burrows or do they need the burrows in the, in the winter months? Do they use them as well? Or are they just sort of out in kind of different sort of habitats where you wouldn't expect their, your breeding population to be? They're, yeah, that's true that they can use other areas that, the that the owls wouldn't use during the breeding season that's probably even true of the owls that are resident they may or Mm. may not stay at their in their breeding location year-round and that's actually a pretty big hole in our knowledge right now is if what some of the owls even that are resident here what do where are they going in the winter and what what areas are they using and what habitat are they using Hmm. how do people respond when you tell them about the the burrowing owls in their area, is this uh, is are these animals that residents of San Diego are aware of? Um, do they do they care about them? Do they are there needs something that people think about when they're when they're making this land management decisions in the area? I think I think when I when when I tell people about burrowing owls, people are really excited. You know, maybe they've seen a picture of a burrowing owl. They're really highly photogenic. You know, oh, a lot yeah. of photographers can catch them during the day, so people like immediately recognize the species when I show them a a picture of them. And I think that they're really excited and proud to hear that there's this um, 
really charismatic species Mm -hmm. in San Diego County. And they immediately kind of ask, like, where can I see one or what can I do to find one? And it's part of that charisma that kind of really helps us tell the conservation story of the species and how it's connected to animals, which may be less desirable for people. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we were talking about here in Southern California, um, the main borough engineer for these owls is the California ground squirrel, which a lot of people view as a pest species. And so we can talk about, but you know, like (laughs) California ground squirrels, like people can see them almost every single day somewhere, you know, in in their yard, at a park, on the beach. So people are like really connected to that species. And so we can tell them about like, well, you see them here in the park and around the trash cans, but really, (laughs) you know, they are a grassland species and they have this huge important role as ecosystem engineers and the burrowing owls, one of those beneficiaries of this engineering process. So conserving California ground squirrels and managing habitat for California ground squirrels, like helps create this healthy ecosystem for an animal that maybe you feel a little bit more amenable to. Is it difficult to convince people to protect California grand squirrels? <laughs> yeah, when, I feel like when people find out we've worked with ground squirrels, the, the biggest question they want to know is how do I get rid of the ground yeah, squirrels? Right. Or, or do you want my ground squirrels? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you know, they're like the squirrels around here, too. They're, they're kind of, uh, they, you're trying to feed birds and they will eat all your bird seed and they'll rummage through your garbage and, and stuff like that. But they're, they're really interesting birds, interesting animals as well. You'd think that um, you could at least reach, I don't know, you know, reach kids to see that California ground scores are useful. And it, it's, I imagine it's kind of difficult to, to convince people that an animal that they've seen as a pest for however long is such an important animal in this, in this ecosystem where they live. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you go about that? Do you have to start them young, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. And I, I, thinking about like tree squirrels, I know people are, they, they're like, they get into my bird feeders and I hate that. And they eat all the bird seed, but here with, with a a ground squirrel, they're, they're digging. And that's generally the issue that people have, like digging around my, right. Digging in my yard, they're digging up all my plants or, you know, (laughs) things like that. So it's a little, it's a little bit harder of a sell, but they are, they are really, they are a really neat species. The, The more you learn about them, um, their sociality, their engineering yeah. feats that they do. And some other, you know, just interesting things about them, like their interactions with rattlesnakes and this, you know, kind of ongoing um, arms race is how it's described as, mm-hmm. as how ground squirrels can withstand um, envenomation for, from, oh, wow. from rattlesnakes. So they're, they're a really interesting species in and of themselves. So the owls kind of can be a gateway into talking about their importance and what's interesting about them. What kind of work do you all do with the burrowing owls? What are some of the the interesting things that you've you've attempted to find out or interesting things that you've learned about this population of burrowing owls? Yeah, we've we've been working with this species since about 2011. Mm-hmm. And so we are building a a longish term data set at this point which is really really great to have more than just a couple years of, of data. Um, so we've been banding owls since 2013, really, mm-hmm. and, and learning more about their population dynamics, which are quite variable in the, some of the already published literature. You'll see um, survival rates that are relatively high. Uh, and and we've, we've seen through our banding efforts that the survival for both 
adults and juveniles is quite variable from year mm-hmm. to year. We haven't looked at this formally, but we certainly think there's a there's a potential link or potential um, problem, more problems coming with climate change that mm-hmm. having these much more variable seasons, much you know, that are affecting prey availability and things like that really affect their ability to have enough chicks every year and for those chicks to survive. And so it it's likely that those variable survival rates are tied to the variability in what's happening with the climate and what, you know, the different weather patterns that we're seeing from year to year. Yeah, I saw on your website that you had been putting GPS trackers on the uh, on some of the owls that you have been you have been studying. Have they do they move in ways that are kind of counterintuitive to what you have expected? Like imagine, you know, a resident population of owls, um, they're more or less going to stay in one place all the time. How are they dispersing into areas around, you know, are, are there places for them to disperse to? Are they checking out sort of marginal habitat and trying to find places there? How do you build a bigger population of owls? That wow, those, those There's are some a lot really of questions, questions there. I apologize. Yeah. I yeah, I just kind of kept uh, roll the ball kept rolling down there, and uh, you can start at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> how talk, are they moving in interesting ways? I was gonna say I can talk about the the telemetry and the movement side of yeah, it, yeah, and then yeah. I'll I'll let Suzanne talk about the uh, the building populations part of it because that's like mm-hmm. that's a newer. Um, sure. addition to our program but um, we did we have put transmitters on a number of owls mostly related to a particular study that we were examining different relocation strategies mm-hmm. and um, one thing is that they're they're Burrowing owls here are about 150 grams, which is about the size of a like single serve cup of yogurt, or I should say mm-hmm. the weight of a single size cup of yogurt. So they're not very heavy. So there are challenges to putting telemetry on right. a relatively small species of animal. Much smaller than you'd expect, actually. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, much lighter than than they yeah. look, and so there are some some still pretty major challenges there. Um, the technology is catching up, but it's not it's not um, it's not to the to the level that we would like to have it to answer mm-hmm. certain types of questions. So we we really only could get some pretty coarse level information, coarse scale information on movements. And of course, we had telemetry failure that happens with every telemetry sure. study. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we were we were looking more at these different relocation types and how the, the owls responded to those. And so we were able to gain um, through the, we had the most success with the mo- the birds that we physically moved ourselves as far as the telemetry working. Unfortunately, the the subset of owls that were the, the transmitters tended to fail uh, were owls that were basically kicked out of their homes and seeing what they did themselves. So that's still an unanswered question that is quite important to their to our understanding of right. their their conservation in the face of of um, all the different things happening that humans are doing and um, but we were able to to learn more about the the outcomes from when we actually physically translocate the owls and move them from a site that's that's about to be developed to a conservation area where hopefully they would be able to um, survive in perpetuity and and we so we we were able to learn about how well they were staying at the site after the translocation and um, and as we expected their translocation is is a 
is a tough thing on an animal. And, you know, we expect that there's going to be some losses. Um, but we were able to refine some of the techniques that we use for translocation, which has fed into our later work. And so one big takeaway from that study was that doing translocation requires a, a much kind of longer runway for the animals after the translocation. So we've we added um, supplemental feeding and other mm -hmm. like kind of longer term support to the birds after the translocation versus just moving them, right. doing some kind of soft release and then letting yeah. them just, you know, letting, leaving Figure them to their out. own devices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I tried to provide a much longer runway for them. And that was all possible through some of the telemetry work that we were able to do. And once they are in these new areas, they, they sit tight pretty well. Like they like to stay in their, in their, you know, wherever, wherever you put them, they're not, they don't wander, I guess, is what I'm asking. Um, they do, but we found one, another, another technique that we tested was using mm -hmm. conspecific cues. So that was either in the form of uh, actual other owls, neighbor okay. owls, moving them to a site that already had owls yeah. or using a, an artificial cue. So we had playback of owl vocalizations that we had recorded from wild owls in the field um, at, and playing them at biologically relevant times to um, encourage the owls to stay, to right. kind of coax them into thinking that there actually were owls at the site <laughs> already. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I know they've done that with seabirds and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Well. It's, yeah. yeah. It's been done with other species and, and that was what we wanted to see if it would work as well with, with mm -hmm. burrowing owls as a semi-colonial species. And, um, and it, it, it did, it proved to work very well. We had hmm. owls that were moved either with conspecifics at the at the receiver site or with cues played at the receiver site were 20 times more likely to stay wow. at the site than owls that we moved without either of those cues so um so that was another tool that we were able to use to add to our toolbox as far as trying to figure out best practices for translocation techniques and what works best with this species yeah it makes sense that a colonial species would respond in a similar way that other colonial birds, even ones that don't seem to be closely related at all. But, you know, the, the, the cues, as you say, are are the same. Yeah, and they are a species with really strong natal philopatry. So there is an element, you know, we've always used soft release with these guys so that there's an acclimation period mm -hmm. where they are learning the new site and kind of breaking the bond to the old site because that bond can be quite strong. So mm -hmm. all these kind of all these pieces combined to make to um, indicate that this is a good place to be, that other owls like to be here. There's plenty of food here, you know, just all these different pieces that we can use to um, entice them to stay. And in staying, they generally will do better than if they leave. I, okay, okay, Suzanne, how do you build out a big population of owls? What are the, what are the sort of roadblocks and how do you want to overcome those? Well, the first step is probably deciding where you're going to put these owls, yeah, where this right. new population is going so. to be, right? So we use a variety of kind of steps, tools to, to um, look at things on a landscape level. So we've done some habitat modeling, looking at where burrowing owls have historically been observed, what kind of vegetation and topography is on the landscape mm -hmm. to first kind of like highlight these places at a landscape level where, where we might put owls. And the next step is, well, some of that property is private and maybe slated for yeah. development or um, but others could be in already in conservation. Um, and um, so, you know, 
the next part is like identifying these potential parcels based upon land ownership and habitat type. Um, And we do these site visits in conjunction with our partners to kind of evaluate the habitat on a more local scale, looking kind of at are there ground squirrels, uh, what kind of grass is here, what kind of soil is here, what it would be the potential for successfully establishing ground squirrels if they are on the periphery of a site or if they're not there at all. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of just see like, well, what do we want to prioritize? And um, maybe based on how much site the how much work the the site needs to kind of get up to the level of supporting a burrowing owl population and in conjunction with that is sort of like buy-in from the partners and land managers is there long-term funding and support to not only get the site ready but continually manage the site um you know for ground squirrels and burrowing owls into perpetuity you know um so we need to really have uh, strong buy-in and um, from these collaborators. Um, the next step is getting a site ready to actually like move the owl. So as part of doing a translocation, we do use artificial burrows. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of times we have to actually install those artificial burrows on the site. The next step is like, where do you get these owls from, right? So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's some, there, there's less of an element, uh, element of if you build it, they will come. Usually we, in, in our cases, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in some cases, you know, when, when you're building, um, establishing these sites where there isn't like an existing peripheral burrowing owl population, like you have to kind of seed it with burrowing owls first. Yeah. And so um, we have sort of two methods of doing that. The first is um, moving owls that are perhaps in the way of, development and um, in conjunction with the state wildlife agencies have determined that the best course of action might be to actually actively translocate these burrowing owls mm-hmm. um, to help kind of um, create a source population for these, um, these these breeding nodes. And then the next step is actually for, or another method that we use is uh, having a conservation breeding program. So we have a conservation breeding program for burrowing owls here at the San Diego Zoo uh, Safari Park, but also with our partners at the Living Coast Discovery Center in Chula Vista. Um, And so we've been able to sort of like produce burrowing owls that are then, you know, released uh, in the late winter, early spring Mm -hmm. to help establish uh, breeding populations on these on these new sites. Are there efforts, you know, local efforts, regional efforts to maintain and to create and maintain this, the appropriate habitat? Um, I imagine, that, you know, San Diego Zoo is a major conservation player in the region. I imagine they have some pull to try and encourage people to be making these changes, should be thinking about burrowing owls and ground squirrels. You know, you talked about how can you do it in perpetuity? That's a That's a huge question, right? Because what there is the appetite for right now. There may not be the appetite for a decade in the future. And then the owls are kind of left out. Like, how do you, how do you maintain interest in protecting these owls and protecting this particular habitat? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, It's, it is really challenging because there's, as with many things, the, there's the thing that's happening right now, there's Mm -hmm. economic development that people that's that's a good thing for most people. They want to see that Everyone happening. Wants it. Yeah. Um, but then there's also yeah that long term that that longer view of mm-hmm. what um, what do we want our 
the places we live in to look like and how much do we value um, our, our own natural history and, mm-hmm. and biodiversity in the areas where we live. And so I think that can be a pretty tough needle to thread. For sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the <laughs> ultimate conservation problem, right? Yeah, how do you, how do you yeah. keep the, the pressure on to keep these things um, the way you want them, the way that you've worked so hard to maintain? Yeah, and there's... Yeah. One challenge with with burrowing owls, as with a number of species, is that they they are a species of special concern. They're not a threatened species or an endangered mm-hmm. species, so there aren't all the same legal mechanisms necessarily to protect um, their their habitat or even to protect those populations. Right. and And so that's definitely a challenge. Um, and we as conservation practitioners we don't we don't necessarily want to see animals end up on the endangered species list right um but sometimes there's we definitely face that challenge of well they're they're not listed so the the options are um are much more limited in those situations and so we try our have our organization having the the um the expertise that we have as well as the just our our long-term investment in working with this species you know we're we're able to um advise our our partners and the wildlife agencies in some ways to to try to with the the limited tools that are available to try mm-hmm. to do the best that they can do yeah. and so we share a lot of information across those those different groups so you know we work very closely with the the agencies to um, help them understand the better the best um, best practices for things like habitat management or mm-hmm. the use of artificial burrows, um, you know, just a, a lot of the different things that we as we're we're down in in the weeds most of the time. Literally, so like we understand right, yeah. we understand <laughs> the details and and we can share that knowledge in a way that helps these people that are thinking about things in a much more broad sense to mm-hmm. try to make the best decisions um, as far as when they have to um, mitigate for development or right. other you know other kinds of um, setting aside land or things like that that we can give them the information that they need to try to make the best decisions. What What is your favorite thing about working with burrowing owls? <laughs> um, I, I don't get to do it as much as I used to, but I still, mm-hmm. my favorite thing I would say is still capturing owls or having an owl in hand. Um, and when we're putting bands on owls or taking a blood sample or um, I do all of the transmittering for our, mm-hmm. our group. So um, that's a that's both ex- somewhat exhilarating, but also very still very nerve wracking. After putting <laughs> you know over a hundred transmitters out, it's still every time it's a little bit it's a little bit nerve wracking. But I I just really love um, I love getting to be up close with them. I mm-hmm. but I, I also really love that we I, I don't I was described as getting having this window into the secret life of of burrowing owls. We have we put out tons of camera traps every year and get photos of them in their element when nobody's around, nobody's watching and get to see all of the things that they do and how they interact with each other and how they interact with other species and just get to see this side that most people never get to see. And it's, I don't know, just, just knowing 
thinking about um, what they're doing. I mean, I sometimes will find myself like when I'm at home making my dinner or something like, oh, I wonder what that owl is doing right now. And there's just this <laughs> element of like, they're out there doing their thing 24 seven, just like we're doing our thing. And um, getting a little a little window into that is really, I don't know, I feel really honored that I get to to see that piece of of their existence, I guess. Yeah, one of my favorite things because of the level of monitoring that we do through our uh, capture and banding effort and all the camera traps we put out is being able to follow an individual over the course of its life mm -hmm. from the year it hatched and all the families it had, the pairings, the breakups, the heartaches, <laughs> you know, you, you build these stories, you try not to anthropomorphize yeah, no them, doubt. you know, with, with our, but with, even with our alphanumeric bands, it's really hard not to have, you know, our favorite birds, um, that we followed across the landscape, uh, over a period of years. And, and like Colleen said, it's just, it's really touching to be able to have this really intimate insight into not only a species, a population, but just like individual birds. And, um, and that's just something really magical that I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to do. It helps that they're so photogenic too. You talked about it earlier, Suzanne, like, how they 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 like owls in general are extremely photogenic. I think the forward facing eyes and the expressions, but I think burrowing owls are are probably the most photogenic owl. It's like they always have some wild expression, like they look exhausted or surprised or or like they're 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 just like a, a wealth of you know meme worthy uh, photos and videos, um, more than more than just about any other owl or any bird. For that matter. Yeah, and we collect mil literally millions of camera shot photos every single <laughs> yeah. year. And when the program first started, you know, we would really, um, you know, highlight and tag very cute photos. And at a certain point, you just almost stop doing that because <laughs> just there's just too yeah. many. And um, you just really like, ah, just choose a photo at, photo at random. It's definitely going to be cute. Like, yeah, right, right. <laughs> there's no way to get around it. They're, they're, they're real. As you said, they're, they're super charismatic. But it, it truly never gets old. I mean, literally after years of doing this, you know, look like looking through camera trap photos, um, having the privilege of having a bird in hand, they're still so cute and mm -hmm. uh, year after year and just it, it, it truly doesn't get old. Yeah. And we I, I, and we actually do have a have a platform where people can kind of experience that as well. We have a website through the Zooniverse platform called Wild Watch Burrowing Owl where people can sign up to be volunteers and look through photos and kind of get that similar experience of being a fly on the wall watching what they're doing. And it's it's really fun for us to engage with folks online that yeah. are kind of discovering this for the first time. They're getting really excited about what they see. And um, and so, yeah, it's just, they're, they're really endearing. And that I think is, yeah, no does doubt. make the conservation story a little bit easier. Colleen Wisinski and Suzanne Marchak are of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance's Burrowing Owl Recovery Program. You can find a lot of the stuff that they're doing on their website. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Please check that out. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you and happy birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, not only our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, but also the feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, 
and beyond. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Sam Tillman of Baltimore, Maryland, Deborah Gierginger of Brooklyn, New York, Eric and Jordan Stalwick of Martinsville, Saskatchewan, and Sandy Graves of Alcoa, Tennessee, all of whom recently joined the ABA note of the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if the smooth and groove-billed Ani will make a go of it together, producing a hybrid swarm flock of smooth-billed Anis. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that it is appropriate that the fork-tailed flycatcher comes back to that same spot time after time. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who is a big fan of those stripe-headed flycatchers because, as he states, they are so fly. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. The RGV Birding Festival refers to the Rio Grande Valley, not to be confused with rail-guided vehicles, which I was disappointed to learn refers to some sort of a self-guided car and not a festival van driven by a Sora, which, let's be honest, would just park that sucker in the marsh anyway. Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody, and we'll catch you next week.